Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Anthem Community Church on this somewhat of a transitional Sunday morning. I stand before you grateful for the opportunity to preach this morning, appreciative of the leadership team and Landon here for giving me this opportunity. Uh, My wife Kelly and I have been a part of the church launch team here and been going here for nearly six years now since its existence. And so this is obviously a a huge blessing for me to be able to do this this morning, as well as um, definitely not something that I take for granted. Now, I know that many of you are probably thinking to yourself, well, you know, a lot of the regular attenders are gone this week. It's the Sunday after Christmas. And, you know, it's kind of like that first Sunday in uh, summer. You know, you, you, the transitional time occurs. You know, the kids are out of school. We're starting to take down the Christmas decorations. There's the, kind of that downhill climb. We had an amazing New Year's, uh, Christmas Eve service, I heard. I wasn't able to be in attendance. But, you know, you kind of hit that climax of Christmas. And then you have the Sunday after, church, or the Sunday after Christmas. And it kind of just begins to fade and dwindle down. And so if that's your thinking right now, and, and you're disappointed in the fact that the pastor isn't preaching on this morning, you know, I, I can concur with you. I can understand where you're coming from there. I can relate with you. Um, hopefully I won't disappoint you in too many regards, but nonetheless, I'll do the best that I can. But let's just be honest up front here. Um, you know, I can't really blame you for, for feeling that way there, but I think the best way to describe that situation, maybe is something in my own mind, was, you know, imagine as this, is if you gave your kids or your family some Oklahoma City Thunder basketball tickets for, for Christmas, and, you know, and they're playing the Lakers in March, and so you're looking forward to this, this game, and LeBron James is going to be in, in Oklahoma City, and your kids and family are all excited to go watch this game, and you're, you get there, and it's March, and you're driving on the way down there, and you get something that scrolls across your phone, and it says, LeBron taking the night off for load management purposes. What does load management mean? I mean, you're, you're a basketball player. Like you're paid to play the game of basketball. But nonetheless, that's probably the best scenario that I can create for this quandary that we're in here, that, you know, load management purposes for Landon, trying to cut him some slack here and, and give him a little bit of a break. I mean, the guy's probably overworked, and, you know, Laura probably had a lot of things for him to do this past week and whatnot there then, too. So, you know, we got to cut him a little bit of slack there. But whether you're misled or feel betrayed by the fact that I'm here this morning and Landon is not, it's really kind of pointless at that point in time. At the the end of the day, though, is I think we can all agree, though, that this load management thing is, is completely blown out of proportion, and, and it's totally untrue, and that we all know that the joke's really on Landon, and the fact that the guy that preaches up here every single morning in his beautiful, golden, Jordan-esque shoes is being compared to LeBron James this morning. And we all know that the truth is, is that LeBron will never... I'm even close to Michael Jordan. For all you young kids that are out there today, that's another conversation for another day. But nonetheless, here we are, ready to give you the best version of myself that I can. And as we enter into this transitional time for us, the excitement of Christmas, you know, we start taking down the Christmas tree, some of us sooner than later. We start taking down some of those Christmas lights and packing away the ugly Christmas sweater for the party for next year. And it's kind of that transitional time as, as we focus on what it is. Teachers are not looking forward to going back to school and when they do, they're like, ah, can't wait for spring break. It's only 12 weeks away. Can't wait to get rid of those monsters already, counting down the days already. And as we prepare for this, at times this leads us into just a time of, let's just get through this. Let's just get through this time of year. Let's just get through this time of day. The days are longer and the snow that Landon deliberately prayed for, for for Christmas will now come in January and just be an utter nuisance unless it leads to a snow day and then maybe it's a great thing. But nonetheless, it just becomes a nuisance. 
And most people are just trying to find their passion for life. It's coming into a new year and it's all this resolutions and, and what do we want to do with it? And this was the story of our boy Nehemiah, um, who we'll focus on this morning. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning um, and you haven't been in the book of Nehemiah lately, which I don't know why you haven't been, but nonetheless, if you haven't been in the book of Nehemiah lately, open up to the middle, you'll find Psalms, scroll a couple books to your left through Job and Esther, and you'll find the book of Nehemiah. You're looking for uh, the big chapter 2, verse 1. And as you're scrolling there, we'll, uh, we'll build some context here. Um, Nehemiah was a godly man um, raised as a Jewish boy. He was born and raised in Babylon, though, um, not Jerusalem. But many of his ancestors were from Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem walls were destroyed at this point in time. So he had a strong passion to come back and rebuild the Jerusalem walls um, and, and to lead this effort. And, you know, to build this, and at that point in time, if you had walls around your city, it was a, it was a, a thing of noble power and of peace and of, and of might. And similar to what I would say, similar maybe to today would be, is that, you know, some of our smaller schools that are trying to fight to keep their doors open, that they want to keep their identity made within their schools, you know, that small town in western Kansas or whatever it might be, that once they lose their school, they kind of lose their identity, they lose their hope. Um, I had the opportunity to play some golf this past summer with uh, the, the former superintendent of the Greensburg School District, who was there when a tornado hit in 2007 and wiped out their school. And I asked him, you know, I didn't know him at all at the time, but I asked him the simple question I just said you know why did you stay you know what, everything was ruined why, why didn't you just leave and he in to paraphrase his quote was leaving was never an option the community needed leadership everyone wanted to join together to rebuild the town the passion of the people was not the problem what they needed was a leader Darren Hedrick stayed until 2016 in Greensburg, uh, until he ultimately retired as their superintendent, and helped rebuild Greensburg School District. But I think um, we can connect this story very closely here to what Nehemiah was facing here as well. You see, they were trying to rebuild the wall since 538 BC. The passion of the people was there, but they didn't have the leader in order to do so. They were unsuccessful until Nehemiah with the king's authority or with the king's approval, was trying to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So let's check it out here. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th day of King Akatarxes, that's the best I got for you, reign, I was serving the king his wine. I had never appeared sad both, uh, never appeared before sad in his presence. Now it's important to understand here that we know that from chapter 1, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king. And the cupbearer for the king was it's that you tasted everything that the king ate to make sure it didn't have any poison before he did so. So imagine every single thing that you eat or drink, you're testing for poison. Thought your job was stressful. Think about that would be your last one every single time. Um, but nonetheless, that's what his job was. And so as a result, um, the king was wondering, you know, and, and it's also understanding here too is that this was actually like a noble position. Like I would assume that you'd probably be like draw the last straw if you were, um, you know, had to be the cupbearer. But it was actually a noble position because the king needed somebody that he could trust. Verse two. So the king asked me, "Why are you looking so sad? You don't look so, uh, you don't look sick to me. You must be deeply troubled." And then I was terrified. You see, he was terrified because the king ruled the land and he did not want to appear sad in front of the king in any capacity there. But I replied in verse 3, Long live the king! How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, Well, how can I help you? 
Nehemiah much to his uh, please, the fact that the king would respond in a way. With a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, If it pleases the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. The king and the queen sitting beside him, he asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? After I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. Now, I'm not sure he maybe told him the truth, because we find out in reality is that it took him 12 years to rebuild the walls. Whether or not he said that, we don't know from Scripture, but we do know that it did take 12 years to build that. So verse 7, I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the king's forest, instructing him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. I think it's important to note here that Nehemiah not only presented a request to the king, but he had a plan as well. It was not just some random request that he had of, well, let's rebuild the king, let's rebuild the walls. He had a plan of action to go through it. He had prayed deliberately to have God's blessing on this situation. Verse 9, when, it came, when I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent, many, uh, had sent along army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when the Sanballat, the Hornonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official heard of my arrival, they were displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the boldness of Nehemiah. We thank you for the opportunities that he had to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Lord, we thank you for this boldness. Lord, we ask that as we uh, dig in deeper into your word and and into this message, Lord, may you speak through me and may may our lives be changed and impacted as we leave this place. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 1983, a homeless Chris Gardner, along with his infant son, Chris Jr., we're sitting in a, uh, a random parking lot outside of a uh, parking lot near Wall Street, and this random red Ferrari pulled up and parked, and a man by the name of Bob Bridges walked out. He was a stockbroker worth millions of dollars, and for some reason, Chris Gardner had the boldness to approach him and say, what do you do? What do you do to have this red Ferrari? And for whatever reason, Bob actually responded and had a conversation with him, and that led then to Bob being able to help Chris get his foot into the doors of Wall Street, ultimately giving him the opportunity to set up an internship. He, along with his son, though, was not paid during this internship, and therefore had no money, had no food, uh, was homeless, as I mentioned there, um, for two years during this internship, and care all the time while caring for his uh, son, who had ended up being two years old, Chris Jr. Ultimately, now many of us have seen this story, it's the story of The Pursuit of Happiness, a movie that starred Will Smith in it, one of his greatest movies, in my opinion, that he created. The story of a man who was trying to give uh, opportunity not only for himself, but for his family and his kids through a simple act of making the ultimate sacrifice of living from one homeless shelter to another, trying to make a life for themselves. You see, however, he, he made this possible what many would consider to be impossible, which is why this morning God has laid upon my heart the sermon message I'm calling Making Possible, Possible. Making the Possible, Possible. 
You see, a lot of times we want to put things in front of us that we feel are impossible, but God's simply sitting there waiting for us to just make it possible. So my question to you is, how do you make 2020 the best year of your life? I believe it starts with preparation. Preparing to fail is basically, you're ready to fail at that situation. Let me be very clear. This is not meant to be some fake or fluffy motivational message in which you walk out of here and feel great about life, and then Monday is no different. 2020 is the exact same thing as 2019. Because I think we can all be motivated, but what is it that you do with that motivation to put action into your life, to truly make a change within what you want to do? I believe that comes down to discipline. And that discipline is a daily journey, a daily routine that we have to go to through on a routine basis. In the words of the great coach John Wooden, he said, discipline yourself so that others don't have to. This lack of discipline in, a, in our society is ultimately why 92% of New Year's resolutions will never be achieved. We're at an 8% success rate. 8%. Crazy enough, January 12th ends up being the day in which most people quit their New Year's resolutions. You made it 12 days. Well done. 12 days. Amazing discipline. I mean, think about the transformational change you can make in your life in 12 days. I mean, it's just amazing. Absolutely. It's scientifically proven, though, that we know that 21 days is what it takes to form a habit. Scientifically proven. Now, 21 days, you might say, man, I feel like I've heard something about that. Oh, yeah, 21 days of prayer and fasting. We do that every single year at this church starting in January. And if you haven't picked up a booklet, do so on the way back out. But it's 21 days of sacrifice that you can make for, for yourself and for the Lord to figure out what it is that, you, that He has in store for your life. But why is it that these resolutions ultimately fail? A New York study post said it for many reasons, some of which are unrealistic, they're not achievable, they lack clarity, even to the word that the, re- the word resolution itself causes failure. The word resolution causes failure. Because, as psychologists have said, it screams, I must accomplish something, and that's just too much. Kidding me? Like, now the word is the fault? Like, that just speaks to the softness of our today's society, I feel like, just in general, that I must accomplish something. Yes, that is what a resolution is, to change something, to do something different, okay? But now we want to blame it on the word itself, and as a result, now we just get softer and softer. Nonetheless, I digress. Let's move forward here. As we approach 2020 to live your best life possible, you must be willing to commit to the best that God has for you. I'll say that again. To live your best life possible, you must be willing to commit to the best that God has for you. Sometime in the year 2012, Landon Jordan invited uh, Kelly and I to join a, uh, a tap team process, uh, which would be research the area of which we researched here and, and to find out where should we plant a new church at. Uh, we initially said no, and Landon invited us to, to go eat at Casa Fiesta in Newton, which if none of you have been to Casa Fiesta in Newton, you're missing out on this ultimate God's delight. Um, the El Hombre, amazing chicken smothered in white cheese sauce with rice and beans and a tortilla wrapped up into one, and they even have a lunch special with this too. It makes it amazing. But nonetheless, Landon invites us to go eat there, and strategically he brings Laura with him because you ultimately can't tell Laura no. Um, And so we agreed to do 
this tap team process. I was struggling myself to even know if I even wanted to like this Landon Jordan guy. Nonetheless, now we're doing this tap team process. And here we go, researching the area. And it was a great research, and we ultimately figured out that, yes, Park City was where we needed to plant a church. We found that 90% of Park City residents were either unchurched or not going to a church in Park City, which is thus the reason that we are here today. But you see, then Landon turned around and phrased to us, and he said, hey, I want you to join us a few months later. I want you to join our launch team. Whoa. We were pretty comfortable with where we were at. You know, we're sitting in the middle of the back of Grace Community Church, sneaking in the back door and leaving out the back door, making sure we made just enough connections during the welcome and greeting time, you know, making an offering, but, you know, making sure that we weren't taking up too much of our time. We drove the one minute to church. That was enough for us. Once again, we found ourselves again at Casa Fiesta. I don't know how that randomly happened again, but here we are eating El Hombre again, and I think I've already mentioned how amazing that was. And once again, I think Laura was with us again, and Elena said, I just need six months from you. Give me six months, we'll help launch this church. All right, we'll go to the first meeting, we'll see once. And so we go to the first meeting, and, um, and um, we're already fairly skeptical, and we get there, and who do we meet first? Bobby Koshrabipur. <laughs> And those of you that know Bobby, that was an intimidating presence for me and as for many of you uh, that you can connect to that. Um, and, and I remember driving home, I told Kelly, I can't do this. I can't do it. I'm done with it. We're not coming back. And for whatever reason, God led us back to week two and week three and week four of this church planning process in the basement of the Park City Library. And what we learned was the powerful stories of those 50 people or 50 plus people that were launching this church. And all of a sudden, stories such as Bobby's that we learned his story of being you know, born and raised in an Islamic culture and, and his conversion over to Christianity and how his life has changed tremendously because of that. And it all of a sudden revealed to us that God was simply putting us in an uncomfortable situation to make possible what he wanted to do through us and what he wanted to do through our church and how we could be a part of his story. So how do we make finding God's purpose possible? First, we need to find the answer is that it, it takes a lifetime to accomplish this. You don't find God's purpose overnight. It takes a lifetime to accomplish that. And so because of that, you're always becoming and you have never arrived. You're always becoming. You have never arrived. You've never mastered it all. You've never learned it all. You've never done it all. You're always becoming. You've never arrived. And the second that we think that we have arrived is the second that we start dwindling ourselves, going backwards in life, not challenging ourselves. You see, I want 2020 to be your best year, but not because I want 2020 to be some magical year, because I want 2021 and 2022 and 2023 and so on to be your best years as well. It's a daily challenge. It's creating that discipline. Growth is the goal that we ultimately want. You see, once you realize that God's purpose in your life is to constantly change you and grow you in all areas, then you can figure out how to change. Because we know that change is hard. If all of us in agree on one thing in here is change is not an easy thing. It's hard. It's not fun. It's difficult. But I will say this and phrase it this way. The pain of discipline is better than the pain of regret. You either have the pain of discipline or you have the pain of regret. It's your decision. Which one is it that you want to embark upon? Both of these occur every day within our life. They occur every single day within our lives that we either regret something or we have the discipline to act to be able to do it and do it well. Phrased another way, you can either talk about change or you can be about it. You can talk about it or you can be about it. Which one do you want to be? 
all of us agree once again that change is hard. So we must ourselves make our talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves, which seems crazy. And what kind of psychological ploy is this here? Well, let's look at it this way. As we listen to ourselves, we ultimately always listen to the negative things in our mind, do we not? We, our mind will always tell us we're not good enough. Our mind will always tell us that that's too much. It always challenges us, and it'll always let us down. And that's why I think it's so important that you challenge yourself with what you're reading and your prayer life and taking the time to set aside to challenge yourself in a podcast, whatever it might be, to truly speak God's Word into your life and challenge you on a routine basis so that you're speaking to yourself, not listening. Because listening is passive, speaking is taking action. This was best described by my high school basketball coach for every single year. We would always start out the first practice of the year with this full court passing layup drill. Those of your basketball players, you remember this drill. It's a very traditional drill. You make the pass, you receive it. You make the pass, you receive it. You got to make the layup. Our, our goals was, you know, the ball couldn't hit the floor, so you ran a line for every time that the ball bounced. It couldn't miss a layup, and you couldn't have a bad pass. Seemed pretty simple, right? Well, usually it was always some freshman, because we know the freshmen are going to screw it up every single time. And it was always some freshman that was a DKer of the day, you know, those drill killers, as we always call them, DKers, you know, that would make the one bad pass, and there goes the ball. One, two, three, four, five, so, oh man, nine lines right there, because we couldn't catch a ball or make a good pass. And now we're all down there, so we're running, and we're getting ready to run, or whatever, 50th line of the day, or whatever, and guys are dropping. And every single year, a coach would always say is, your mind will quit on you way faster than your body. Your mind will quit on you way faster than your body. He was trying to teach us mental toughness. And, it, and, and big fact is that change isn't easy. In order to come over that mental obstacle is that change is not easy. It's going to take some time. But to truly change, you have to either find a way or you're going to find an excuse. You can find that excuse of, well, it's just, I'm not good enough, I'm not strong enough, whatever it might be, or you can find a way. It's your choice, whichever one you want to do this. To begin this change, though, it starts with small steps. And we know that the grandest of journeys, the smallest steps complete the grandest of journeys. The smallest steps complete the grandest of journeys. This is the number one reason why number one resolutions are never met. Because you try and accomplish everything at one time. You know, you try and start, oh, I'm going to work out and I'm going to be able to figure all these details out. And you have to win and battle in your own mind every single day. This is best exhibited by scientific research shows that if you haven't worked out in years and you decide that, hey, I'm going to start working out, it's best not to actually go work out on day one. It's best to get out of bed, drive to the workout facility, drive to the Y, and sit in the parking lot. And then turn around and drive home. Call me crazy, okay? But scientifically proven, if you do that for a couple days, then the third day you'll walk in the facility and you'll actually work out, and the fourth day you'll work out, and fifth day or whatever. But you see, why is that successful? Well, because we know that if you go try and accomplish everything in day one, it's like lifting weights and you haven't lifted for two years. Oh, man, that two-day layover, then that, and two days later, brutal. And so what happens when that alarm hits? Ah, let's, let's, we'll, we'll go tomorrow. We'll go tomorrow. And then day four hits. Oh, we'll go tomorrow. And pretty soon it's January 12th and you're done with the whole thing already because it's 12 days in and your resolution was 12 days long. It happens all the time to us. And so my challenge to you is, is that it's the little things you have to battle. Every single morning when I wake up, it's not a matter of once I walk into the Y, I'm motivated to work out. I look at somebody else that's doing way more weight than I am, running way faster than I am. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll try and do my best that I can here to fit in. But walking into it is not the problem. It's the battle in my mind every single day is can I win? win the battle between my alarm and my brain? Can I win the battle of that each and every day? 
And that's just not working out. That's in your prayer life. That's in your reading. That's in your interactions with people. It's those small steps that create the grandest of journeys. I don't know what you desire to change in 2020. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your eating habits, your relationships, an attitude that you have. Maybe it's something at work, a connection with a coworker. Maybe it's reading your Bible, praying more consistently. But whatever it is, start with the small steps. You see, Nehemiah started with a very small step in which he needed the king's blessing to do so. He had a whole plan developed. But without the king's blessing, he could not accomplish what he wanted to do. Once Nehemiah started this rebuild process, though, he met plenty of criticism and resistance. We read Nehemiah 2.10. They were displeased that someone had come to help the people of Israel. Their building process was slowed, according to Nehemiah 4.17. Those who were building the wall... They carried materials and did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. Talk about multitasking. See, no accomplishment is achieved without some resistance. So it's important to keep your passion level high and your distraction level low. Keep your passion level high, but your distraction level low. You feel like, man, I've heard this before. Yes, the age-old prophet, Pastor Landon Jordan, spoke about this sometime a few months ago. And... But what, what it's saying here is that to change a habit isn't about saying yes to the one thing. It's easy to say yes to the one thing. It's saying no to the 100 other things that are going to distract you from changing that. Saying yes to the one thing is the most important aspect, but you've got to be able to say no to the things that are going to distract you from that. If you want to get into the Word of God more, well, you've got to be able to say no to your phone more. You've got to be able to say no to TV more. You've got to be saying no to the things that is. And I'm not trying to ruin your quality of life, but what is it that you want to accomplish? What is it do you want to get done? Now, as we look at these five areas of life and how they're worth living, the first four all deal with you. They all deal with you. But I don't know about you, but I know if I surround myself with a group of people to hold me accountable, I'll get things done a lot higher rate than if I just try and hold myself accountable. And so that's why I believe the fifth one is the most important process in this chronological step, which is invest into other people. You must invest in other people. You must have a close friend that's going to expose your blind spots. You must be able to listen to somebody that's going to hold you accountable. And you ask, well, what's a blind spot? Those things that we, unco- that we unconsciously do that negatively affect those around us. Blind spots. Things that we unconsciously do that negatively affect those around us. Oh, it's easy to identify them like in our spouse. You know, those things that just drive us crazy and point those things out. But do you have enough boldness to have somebody reflect upon you? And what is your blind spots? What is it that you're doing that you don't even work? You're not intentionally trying to hurt somebody. We think about it. I guarantee you your boss has something about this. And that if your boss, he or she knew, they probably would change it. But nobody's exposed their blind spots. You, best be able to, you must be able to surround yourself with people who are willing to do so. What is, uh, we must be able to find a way in which to be able to do so. However, it's not also about the negativity of blind spots, but it's also about surrounding yourself with people to help build you up, to build passion within your life, to be your cheerleaders. Now, Landon always says this is a safe place, and so uh, I'll uh, confront some things here. I really, 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 really struggle with cheerleaders. 
like it, it's a struggle for me um, to the point where my daughter one day was, was imitating some, some Bethel College cheerleaders at home and I immediately sent her to her room, said no food, no drink, no toys, no fun until you promise to never ever do that again. It's not true. Um, although the conversation did occur, I can't deny that. Um, but we all need cheerleaders in our life. As an athletic director, I find myself in a quandary of sorts, trying to advocate for something known now as competitive cheer. Does anybody know what this is all about now? It's this, uh, it's this cheer that's on ESPN, um, you know, with the lights and the stage, and they're throwing people in the air and tumbling. It's quite athletic. It's amazing, I'll be honest with you. And it, it's impressive. And so, you know, we have a coach at Bethel that's done a really good job with our cheer program and won a couple conference championships. And, and now, now we're in this predicament because um, without going into great detail, cheers, competitive cheers in a weird dynamic because it's not an NCAA sport. It's recognized by varsity. And varsity is what all these Division I schools participate at. The NAIA, however, which we participate in, recognizes it as a competitive sport. Okay? Well... Some of, so we have this conference meeting where some schools are trying to pull out of the NAI competitive sport because they want to be varsity and others want to go back to the NAI. And I find myself advocating passionately for our cheer program, saying we need to stay in the NAI. This is the best thing for us. Our conference needs this, whatever. And I'm passionately debating it with other conference schools. And what happens when you passionately debate and argue for something? They place you on a committee. And so now I'm on a committee at the national level advocating for competitive cheer. I apologize to all those who I let down. Um, my dad's here in attendance, so I apologize specifically to him as well. Um, but nonetheless, I think the important aspect here is, is that we need cheerleaders in our life. My mom was my greatest cheerleader and still is to today. She always believed that I could do greater things way than I ever thought I could myself, and to this day still does that. And maybe in fairness, that's because she was a college cheerleader. Shout out to the Cloud County cheer squad of 1976, go T-Birds. Um, it probably came natural to her. But nonetheless, my question to you is, who in your life is your cheerleader? Who is it that supports you? Are you allowing them to be that for you? Do you surround yourself with life givers or a bunch of energy vampires? You know, those people that just suck the life out of you. Better question is, are you an energy giver or are you an energy sucker? Something to think about as you enter into the new year. So now as we kind of call this into action, we have these five principles here. And, and I think this is where it kind of comes into, it's like, well, yeah, motivational speaker, great. Let's go be great. 2020 is going to be an amazing year. Let's go do it. But how do we make that applicable? How do we make the necessary changes? And I think that's where you realize that you need to change by acknowledging that you have never become, that you recognize that you... Um, you know, that the smallest steps have to occur to make the grandest of journeys. That big changes start with small things. You've got to limit your distractions. You can finally realize that none of this is possible without investing into other people. But how do I make this class? How do I make this possible? And I'm glad that you asked. See, I think this starts with we don't know what our capacity is until we push ourselves outside of our limits that we didn't know before. We'll never know what our capacity is until we push ourselves outside of our limits that were before, which means you've got to challenge yourself on a routine basis. So let's focus on four simple agents of change, if you will, or four simple steps. Number one is invest into who or what you want within your life. Invest into who or what you want to value in your life. Stop being lived and start living the life that you want to live. 
Stop allowing others to live their life through you in a negative manner and live the life that you want to live. Take action with that. When setting life goals, set a goal that you have 100% control over. Don't set a life goal that you're trying to change somebody else's life. No, focus on what can you do to change yourself. Look yourself in the mirror and what can I do to improve that relationship? What can I do to change myself? What can I do at work? You can't change that coworker, but your attitude can help change them along the way. In 2018, I made the difficult decision to uh, step out of college basketball coaching. I'd been head coach for, I don't know, 10 plus years, and, and it was a difficult decision. And I was doing both roles at that time as an athletic director and as a coach, and so I guess it's a lot easier when you can just fire yourself, and it makes life a little bit easier that way too. But um, it was a challenge, and it, it was a, an identity that I was trying to create within my own self because, you know, that's what my family does. My dad was a coach for many years, and it's, we were just born and raised in this culture, and, and you know, I loved basketball, and I loved the opportunity, and you know, my interactions with all my friends, they were all coaches coaches and all these people and it was it was a daily grind for me but in the backside of it I was miserable yes I loved impacting other people and I still missed interactions with recruits and and people that I had the opportunity to witness to but at the end of the day was I was living a miserable life I wasn't getting the fulfillment of it and why because I was trying to put put time and energy into something I was valuing but ultimately wasn't a value to me anymore I was able to step away from coaching and find a new career path that I love and enjoy doing. I was able to spend more time with my family, and although it was rough for the first few weeks because, well, quite frankly, Kelly and I hadn't been around each other that much that long, and so it was a struggle there for a while. But, you know, I was able to invest more into my kids. And and as a result, I've also been able to find value in new leadership or new passion within our church. You know, the thing I love most about our church is that if you're, if you're passionate about what you want to do, there's a place for you to find what it is that God has blessed you with and be able to do it successfully. For me, that was leadership, and so being able to take over our Sunday morning huddles or lead our uh, next series or be able to speak this morning, whatever that might be. But all those things couldn't be accomplished unless I wouldn't have made that to decision to find some time for myself. Which the next agent of change leads me then is time management. It's your time management. And you might say, well... I, I, I can't control my time. I mean, my kids have all these activities and I've got this stuff at work to do and I can't control this. What if, yes, you can. Yes, you can. It's a matter if you want to take control of it though or not. This past summer, I had the opportunity to go to Ohio State with our football coach and, uh, as he was speaking at a recruiting conference. And one of the individuals that spoke there was by the name of Mandy Green. She was a former Division I college soccer coach. And she was talking about Frankenstein's principle of time. I have no idea why it's called Frankenstein, so don't ask me, but that's not the point here. Um, But Frankenstein's principle of time is you will accomplish what you want to accomplish in the time that you set a lot, the time that you set aside to do it. So how many of you in here are procrastinators in some capacity? All right, two of you, great. All right, so uh, I'll be the third and say I'm terrible about procrastination because I will do the things that I want to do right away. And the things that I don't like doing... I will not do them. And I will put them on a sticky note and you'll see my desk filled with hundreds of sticky notes of things that I don't want to do because I just put it off. And so what do I have to do? I take this principle, Frankenstein's principle of time, and I avoid all the distractions of my life. I'll close the door and I'll put a time allotment on that. If I think that this report's going to take me an hour to do, I'll set a time allotment and I'll work on that for an hour. And lo and behold, it almost always takes me like 57 58, maybe 59 minutes. It's crazy. 
It's absolutely, it's no different than when Landon told me I had two hours to speak this morning. When I practiced it, it was an hour and 59. It was amazing. It was truly amazing there. Okay. Oh, sorry. All right. But nonetheless, it's crazy how we, what we do in the time that we allot is what we will accomplish. Take control of your schedule. God will expose things to you by taking control of that schedule that you never even knew were possible for. He will make them possible for you. Once you take control of your time, then you can focus on establishing a routine. You see, without good time management, you can't focus on your routine. We're all liars to love a routine. Ask any good substitute teacher, and they do one thing a little bit differently than the main teacher, and the kids just go crazy in that class, do they not? We all love a routine. I'm yet to discover, though, an individual who is passionate about life and a lover of Jesus and on fire for Jesus that sleeps in every single morning. Maybe it exists, I just haven't seen it. That passion starts, I believe, that routine must start in the morning. So listen up, I think this is really good. Sit up and listen to this one. If your routine doesn't involve some form of exercise, reading, or a podcast that challenges you, a conversation, and a prayer that challenges you, a prayer life that challenges you to grow on a daily basis, then I believe that you will always feel some sort of emptiness in your life. If you're not challenging yourself on a daily basis, to read something, to do something that challenges you to get outside of your comfort zone, you're always going to feel empty in some capacity. Which leads me to my fourth agent of change, which is read, pray, and fast. Read, pray, and fast. And don't just do these. A friend of mine who's a really successful uh, NBA development coach, Phil Beckner, always says is that read, pray, run every single day and don't just do it, do it well. I'll put in there, read, pray, and fast, and do them, and do them well. See, reading something in a word, it's not a competition. Yeah, if you want to get through the Bible in a year, that's great. But it doesn't matter. Get in the word. There might be one verse. You know, Landon always talks about have a, a pen and a paper with you as you're reading the word. And maybe there's one verse that you focused on for 30 minutes. That's great. It's not a competition. It's getting into the word. The word that is the number one selling book of yesterday, today, and forevermore. The amazing stories that are in here that connect us to God's word, that challenge us each and every day to grow. Open it up. You'll be amazed what you'll find. The next thing is pray well. Take time to pray each day. Get rid of the distractions. Shut the door. Be able to focus on truly just listening to God. Listening to what God has to say. You might say, well, Tony, that's weird. Yeah, and living an uncommon life is weird in today's society too. Living a disciplined life is weird because it's going to make you successful in what, you, what it is that God has you to do. Not successful in terms of the world's terms, but it's successful in finding God's purpose and value and ultimately finding your purpose in what you want to do. You see, the first thing that Nehemiah did was he prayed. He asked for the king's blessing and he prayed. And he prayed a bold prayer. And as a result of that, he was able to rebuild the Jerusalem temple or Jerusalem walls. If you want to reach God with our, if we want to reach God with our emergency prayers, we need to take time to cultivate a relationship with God through our in-depth prayer on a consistent basis. It's not about that emergency prayer. It's about that in-depth conversation each and every day. And the last thing then, as I will say, is fast. See, fasting is, is something that's, you know, seems I, just different. It's odd. You know, for me, I, uh, I was able to indulge in 
green bean casserole and cheesy potatoes and turkey and rolls and cherry pie and amazing Christmas cookies that my sister makes every single year that are amazing. Yeah, my Christmas dinner, it was legit. My Thursday morning run wasn't as legit. But as a result of that, it was amazing. But I found myself reflecting on a story that I connected with a former professor of mine that is retired now, and I ran into him at a retirement celebration a couple weeks ago for somebody else at at work, and and I was giving him a hard time because there was a platter of cookies and all this good stuff over here, and I was indulging in it, and I was loving every bit of it, and his, his plate was empty. And this is a man that can put a soft serve ice cream machine out of business. Like, this guy can destroy ice cream. It's amazing. And I looked at him sarcastically and I said, hey, Russ, where's your plate of cookies at? And his response was this, so profound. He said, while I love food, I always fast from all sugar during Advent and Lent each year. While we celebrate Jesus, I want to remember the sacrifice that he made for me. This way I remember the impact that he made on the world. And I know that it wasn't easy for him. It's a simple gesture that I allow myself to keep my mind focused on what truly the season is all about. I responded with a thank you and felt publicly shamed and humiliated in front of his presence. But it was so true. He wasn't trying to put me in my spot, just trying to invoke wisdom upon it. So I asked, what are you so passionate about? That's why we do the 21 days of prayer here and fasting to start out your new year. To find out what is the purpose. Find out what it is that you can make possible in 2020 for your own life to truly develop it as your best year ever. You see, God didn't call us to live an ordinary life. He didn't call us to just go through the mundane motions of life. See, Jesus came, he was born, he died, he rose, and he will come again. It's the greatest news of all time. And we have that opportunity to share with that somebody else all the time that what we have in our own life is possible for this entire world. That the reason we planted this church is for 90% of people of Park City to hear something that maybe they haven't ever heard before. To experience something that they haven't able to been able to hear before. To live a life that they didn't think was possible. To get rid of all the frustrations and the anger. And I don't know what you went through in life. But it may, everybody has a hard story. Everybody has a story to some extent. How do you make that possible? How do you turn that negative into something positive? To live something for fulfillment of God. To make possible what truly is possible. You see, this church was, wasn't planted for a bunch of church-going people. It was planted for the unchurched. And it's transformed now into, into a vision that we want to call is, you know, seeking God's purpose within everybody's life. To take whether you're church, unchurched, whatever it is, whoever's in our seats today, and to be able to make it into making it into something for God's purpose. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. And not just for this church, but for this community, this country, this world, for ourselves. But it all starts with the power of us and the power of one person. That power of one person that can change the entire world. I pray that for you, your 2020 is different, that your Monday is different, that your week is different, not because you're motivated that you heard something that maybe connected with you, but because you put a disciplined life structure into you that is different, that you make changes that are different for yourself this year, that you do something different to experience God in a way that you've never experienced before. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity. We thank you, Lord, for giving us life. Thank you for the gifts and talents that you have given us, Lord. 
Lord, I don't know the story of everybody in this room here, but, but we do know, Lord, that there's hurts and there's aches and pains. And maybe 2019 was a hard year, or maybe it was the best year ever. Lord, ultimately, we know it doesn't matter because it's all part of your story and your plan. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that whatever is possible for us as a church and whatever is possible for us as individuals this coming year, Lord, may we seek the disciplined lifestyle to ultimately make the sacrifices so that you can show that to us. And Lord, for that person that's in this audience that doesn't know you yet, Lord, I pray, Lord, that they don't walk through these doors without actually experiencing you in a way that they've never done so before. Knowing that they haven't lived the perfect life and none of us have, by simply saying, Lord, I'm sorry. I've made mistakes. I've sinned. And I ask repentance for that. Lord, we know that there's no magic in that, but we also know that today can be a day in which it can transform somebody's life to have a new life. And so, Lord, we thank you for that person, whoever that might be in this room. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to, to live for you. We thank you for the, the, the comfortability that you give us, Lord. But Lord, may we not take that for granted and use that in a negative way. Lord, may we seek to bring glory and honor to you in all that we do. That this year can be a year in which we can impact people we never thought were possible. Because, Lord, we made it possible. Because, ultimately, you made it possible within each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.